you can't go on mission to people and help them if you don't see yourself as superior to them, right? That's what this entire institution is based on. It's a very deeply embedded ideas of white supremacy and American exceptionalism. I'm Lee Matthews, and you're listening to The Good Problem Podcast, a weekly series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. I'm fascinated by the different ways that humans express what it means to do good, why they do good, how they do good, and what the consequences of their actions are. One of the most widely used mechanisms for doing good is through religion. And as with everything humans do, this is interpreted in vastly different ways, all driven by a personal interpretation of what it means to be a believer in one's chosen religion. Evangelism and missionary work are expressions of this, and each year, millions of Americans travel overseas for missions trips. Some of them head off for a short-term mission, while others dedicate years of their lives to their mission, fully supported by their home churches to set up in far-off places and embed themselves and their beliefs in the communities that they've deemed in need of saving. Race and power dynamics play a huge role in how missionary work is conducted. And to help me unpack this, I invited Dr. Andriana Prashad onto the podcast. Andriana is an associate professor of African history at the University of Oklahoma, and her work deals with the history of gender, Christianity, and development in Africa, and also explores the history of evangelical child sponsorship initiatives in East Africa and the American Bible Belt. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Andriana. Hi. First off, I'm going to ask you something I ask all my guests. What does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? That's a great question. When I think about doing good, it's, I guess, not something really for me to define. It's something that should be defined by people that are on the receiving end of whatever good work you're trying to do. I don't think that it's something that is neutral. I think it's something that can only really be defined and articulated by recipients. And so in order to really understand what doing good is, I think that it really is an answer that needs to come from um, people on the ground. Do you think that doing good is something that you integrate into every aspect of your daily life or is it something that you kind of silo off and and do in certain contexts? I think that people should always be attentive to how their daily actions are being understood and being received. I think that we should always strive to do good in the work that we do and the relationships that we build, you know, and whether that has the outcome that we desire can only really be understood by asking how we're doing and, you know, kind of a continual conversation back and forth with um, recipients. I think about it a lot, you know, as Christmas is approaching and I have an infant and this is his first Christmas and people have asked, well, what does Theo need? What does he want? And I think that those are really good models in terms of us thinking about how we can do good, right? Asking, what does the person need? What do they want? Do you even need anything? Would it be better for us just not to give you anything? Because maybe you have more toys than you could <laughs> ever need, right? And so I think that 
that those are really important questions too. And sometimes doing good is really not doing anything at all. Yeah, definitely. You teach courses on the history of Africa and Christianity and and development. And your current work focuses on the history of evangelical child sponsorship initiatives in East Africa and the American Bible Belt. Can you tell us what led you to focus on this particular space? Sure. So I'll kind of take it back to undergrads. I always knew that I wanted to be a history major. I kind of came up reading these American Girl history books right before they were the American Girl franchise that we have in the U.S. with the dolls and the stores. And they were really just books about women from different parts of the world that had emigrated to the U.S. And I was really intrigued with these really intimate stories of women. So when I went to graduate or undergrad, I knew I wanted to study history and I was really interested in studying women's history. And I took some really amazing African history classes. They were required, a non-West gen ed requirement. And I had two professors who happened to be married to each other. One was South African and they had both, they met in South Africa and they taught history just in this really compelling way that really drew me in. And I was really intrigued by the sources that are available. They're very different, as you can imagine, for African history than they might be for Americanists. And I was intrigued by the questions that you can ask of them and the way in which you have to ask these questions, Um, especially getting at women's history, right? To me, it was a whole different kind of line of questioning. After undergrad, I majored in African history in college. And after that, I decided I wanted to go to graduate school and focus on African history. And when I worked on East Africa, the sources that were available to me and that I was really interested in were about a group of women who married nationalists in Tanzania, kind of early nationalists, but had their own work that they were doing. And they happened to be products of a mission school. And I could see in the sources that there was this women's network kind of evolving outside of the men's work. And that really intrigued me and and the ways in which I could access that and the ways in which I could kind of understand their voices. So I had a project that was focused on Christianity and women's history, got a job in Oklahoma, which is not kind of where I had ever thought that I would end up. You know, but when I moved here and started teaching, I noticed that my students were really... Um, religious and that the Bible Belt is a real thing. And I, growing up in Southern California and going to graduate school in Chicago, I just had no kind of concept of what that really was like. And so moving here and starting to teach, I really wanted to meet the students where they were. And I had a specialty in Christianity in Africa. And so I knew I could teach that. And then through listening to my students and talking with them, I started to understand how many of them had done mission projects and were interested in doing mission work. And so developed these courses kind of in response to that. And humanitarian is I teach a class called Africa and the Urge to Help. It's humanitarianism in historical perspective. And that was really in response to what I was seeing of my students, the work that they were doing. And it's a very critical course. You know, they enter thinking this is going to be great. Um, We're going to learn about the work that we want to do. And we get a few weeks in and it's a real surprise. (laughs) You know, that's been really gratifying. I think that we can have these really interesting and compelling conversations about work that's interesting to them, but do so in a way that really opens their minds I hope at least to 
the complexities of doing good, particularly through evangelicalism. The project that I'm working on now was really a project of living here. Um, I'm working on a project about a young man named Matthew Durham, who was a missionary. He lived in Oklahoma, just 20 miles from where I am now, and is a missionary doing kind of short-term mission trips to Kenya during the summer. And while he was there, 2015, he was accused of sexual assault against a number of children in the orphanage where they were working. And he was tried in America on federal crimes and his sentence was 40 years in prison. So I'm really looking at kind of the complexities of that story. And it is really complex. There's a lot of questions about the good of child sponsorship, right? What was he doing in the first place? Was that work even what kind of problems attend to this kind of inherently? I'm looking much less at the crime itself, right? Or the accusations of crime itself than these broader currents that kind of produced a situation in which this young man with no discernible skills could end up in a situation where he was in such close contact with kids, right? Um, you know, there are some complexities in U.S. Bible Belt culture as well that kind of produced a situation in which he could viably be charged with these crimes and be accused of them. And in which the jury and the federal prosecutors would also be able to make a case that because he was potentially gay, he was also potentially a pedophile. You know, and that line of argument worked um, and it probably wouldn't have worked in California. It probably wouldn't have worked in Chicago, but it worked in Oklahoma because of this kind of evangelical culture in which he was tried. So, you know, I'm looking at these much broader questions rather than really at the crime itself. That's kind of how I ended up (laughs) doing the work that I'm doing. And I I think that's a theme that is of interest in this podcast is what sociocultural kind of environments produce people who are heading off to do missionary work or gap year volunteerism work with the mindset that they are qualified and skilled to help people. And often these are very young people going off to do this and they have the support of their church communities often that are financially and emotionally supporting them. They're getting reputational gains from what they're doing and they're heading off and setting up orphanages and acting as mother or father to tens or hundreds of children. Do you think these young missionaries are capable of understanding the complexities of their actions, especially when they've grown up indoctrinated into the idea that their entire purpose in life is to save the souls of other people? Some of them can over time. I don't think when they initially go that many of them have ever been encouraged to think about this as potentially complicated. And so I think that that's one of the things that is really hard is that there hasn't been a current um, of critical thought about the work that they're doing. I teach in the Honors College. I get these incredibly bright, incredibly sophisticated students that take my humanitarianism class their junior and senior year, and they haven't been encouraged to think about this as a complicated endeavor. And once they do, I think a lot of them are really astounded by how complex it is. We don't teach African history in high school here. This isn't something that they've ever encountered. 
so all they know really is what the media teaches them, right? And what they see, and they're presented with a very narrow picture. So I'll say that when I was kind of first getting involved in the evangelical community here, I worked with an organization that is explicitly a child sponsorship organization. They host short-term mission trips during the summer. I went on several of those trips with the groups from Oklahoma to Kenya. Their project is in Northern Kenya. So I've spent you know, a lot of time around students in this age, right? They're high school, college students who are doing mission trips. Many of them have been to Africa. This is their first trip, right? They're, you know, I did ask them a lot of questions about how they felt and how they understood what they were doing. And it would sometimes be the third or the fourth trip. And after they got comfortable with me and after we talked for a while that they started to be able to really interrogate what they were doing. And I think they come from a culture that doesn't encourage that within the church necessarily. And so it does get really, really hard for them. And it's also so much of their identity and so much of the identity of people, at least in the Bible Belt, is being Christian and being faithful and being a woman or a man of God. And to step away from that and to challenge themselves is really challenging who they are and how they've grown up and what their families, and that's hard to do. So I think that it isn't until later, but once people get it, I think it can be really convicting, as they say. It can potentially be a bit harder the further you go down the missionary kind of path. If you're somebody that has actually gone and set up an organization or a project and you're living there and your life is funded by your church and your whole identity is centered around being a person of God, a missionary that is saving souls, essentially. I think the further you are down that path, the harder it is to detangle your identity from that space. And we often see that with trying to look at deinstitutionalization of orphanages that are run by missionaries. It's much harder in many cases because there's an extra layer of motivation and reputation and identity. I think that that's absolutely right. And this is, I think, something that I've thought kind of a lot about And, you know, I'm sure that you talk about it with a lot of your guests, but the way in which race plays into this, it becomes even more complicated, right? Because there's not only the kind of patriarchal and orientalist ideas that are so entrenched in a lot of versions, not all versions, certainly, but a lot of versions of evangelical Christianity, you know, but there's also this idea of American exceptionalism and white supremacy, right? That is really, really hard for people to step away from. And so I guess that's a way of saying that even if people can begin to separate some of their faith from this, it gets harder to kind of separate your racial identity and to confront that. And as we've seen in the U.S. this summer, right, it is really hard for people to kind of acknowledge the way in which race shapes their lives. For white people, anyway, to acknowledge. It's not (laughs) obviously as difficult for people of color in the States to acknowledge that because they live it every day. That is a defining feature. But I had this experience when I was traveling with a group of short-term missionaries to Kenya. We were in Northern Kenya and um, they were thinking a lot about their relationship to 
the community where they were working. And it was a pretty progressive church in that sense. They had really tried to think through this relationship and the positives and negatives that come out of it. And they were really, you know, kind of thoughtfully interrogating that. But one of the things that they were really not thoughtful about was their relationship with the community at home. And there is this sense, I think, for a lot of people, and I see it in my classes, that African-American people of color in the U.S. have bootstraps, as they say, and Africans don't, right? There's a way in which, you know, they expect people in the U.S. to be able to overcome whatever, however they would define these kind of shortcomings in the U.S. because we have these structures that would allow you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But that for Africans, you know, they're much more natural, right? They're much more kind of primitive. And so it's much harder, you know, and they wouldn't necessarily say those words, but I do think that that's what drives a lot of that thinking. So this community was really not comfortable confronting their relationships with African-Americans in the States. A few years after their trip, I noticed on the Instagram page that they had started in their elders book group, reading Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me, which is a reflection from an American Black public intellectual about his son's relationship with the world and about kind of the anger that he has as, you know, raising a Black son in the U.S. and how hard that is and the challenges that he knows his son is going to face. And I saw this group reading it, right, this church group, and I was really amazed by kind of their willingness to start confronting that and I do think that that's something that is less common and that groups are less likely to do, to really kind of dig into that relationship. I think it's really interesting to apply this to the orphanage context as well, because we often see missionaries focusing on supporting children, orphans, widows, despite the prevailing evidence that institutional care is harmful for children. I'm interested in unpacking why why the focus on children? I think that there's a lot going on. <laughs> One of the things that there is scholarship about and I think about in my own work is kind of derived from Christian Cheney, who's an author who writes a lot about orphans and orphan care in East Africa, and Catherine Joyce, who has written similarly about kind of the orphan trade. And there's this idea called orphanology. If you guys have, I'm not sure, talked about it on the podcast before, but um, this idea that embedded in the Bible and in kind of scripture is a commandment that the faithful care for orphans and widows. So there really is this kind of biblical pull to minister to orphans and widows. And I think that that has really shaped a lot of the mission work. When I was traveling with one of these groups, they brought shirts with them to Kenya that said on the front, I am adopted. And I had no idea what that meant. And the way that they explained that was, we're not literally going to adopt these people, but what we are doing is going to adopt them into the family of God. And the way in which we do that is working with children because they are closer to blank slates, right? This is an old trope within evangelical circles. People, you know, in the 1850s said this, you know, they're blank slates, right? It's easier. They're less sinful. And so we work with children, we adopt them into the family of God, and then they can go on and minister to nations on their own. So I think that that's one thing that's going on. And I think the other thing that's going on, and we talk about this a lot in my classes, is that kids are amazing. 
right? They're so joyful and they're fun to be around. And I think they embody this idea, at least in Africa, of this primitive, joyful, carefree version of Africa that a lot of people like to think about. And so going and working with these communities and with children feels very rewarding, I think, because the white Wazungu walk in and they are feted and greeted. And I think that that's really rewarding. It makes people feel like they're really doing something and they're working with kids, which is always fun. Um, So I think that there's a little bit of focus that way. I think Christianity is also, at least around here, and a lot of Christian denominations are very patriarchal. And I think that there's this idea of we have to take care of our families, right? And we have to take care of the families of God. And, you know, Africans and Asians and, you know, people around the world, I think, are believed to not be able to do this by themselves. And so it's up to white evangelical or white Christian men to do this for them. So I think that that's also happening. This very kind of patriarchal idea of being like Christ, the divine man going in and saving communities and saving children uh, because they can't do it themselves. Yeah. And, you know, going back to the, the idea that children are pure and blank slates, is there an element of that where the parents are not pure, so they're impure, they've sinned too much and it's too hard? It's easier to separate the child from the family and start fresh. Yeah, absolutely. My first book is about um, a group of missionaries that worked in East Africa in the 1860s. And they would literally say that in their writings that, you know, these children are blank slates. We separate them from their families so they don't have this influence from their parents who were either involved in the slave trade or had been slaves themselves, which the missionaries believed was inherently damaging to have been a slave. So they would separate them, right? And I think that you're exactly right. Those same things are going on today, right? If we can remove them from their families, they won't have the influence of whatever attends poverty. Whatever Whatever we we don't don't agree with. with. Right, Um, absolutely. Whatever cultural practices we don't agree with, whatever kind of influences of poverty or sin that have gotten children into this situation in the first place, right? Of needing care. Do you see any discussion of the racism and the power dynamics that are going on here? Do you see any discussion of that within evangelical circles in America? You know, as I mentioned before, like only very rarely do we see it. And one of my favorite anthropologists who writes about this stuff, Andrea Freitas, you know, has done a lot of research on evangelicals who work in Malawi in particular and in East Africa more generally, you know, and she's done interviews both before and after they come back from mission trips and sees essentially no change in their understanding of the communities where they've gone and essentially no change in how people understand their work. And so there's very little self-reflection on the benefits of going and their positionality and the relationship with communities. You know, I didn't see any of it in the the organization that I went with, unless I would raise it, right? And that's always kind of a, (laughs) well, here's this stodgy old professor, right? Raising these questions and making us feel bad about what we're doing. So, um, uh, you know, that was a, I didn't see any of it. Um, And it's really hard for people to talk about, but 
really vital. I mean, to challenge that and to have those discussions really starts to break apart the industry of being a missionary. No, absolutely. It does. Because I think that that's what a lot of this is founded upon, right? You can't go and mission to people and help them if you don't see yourself as superior to them, right? That's what this entire institution is based on. This idea, you know, very deeply embedded ideas of white supremacy and American exceptionalism. And if you challenge that, what are you doing? I want to talk about this notion of orphanhood as well. Um, there, there's an argument in this sector that sometimes families opt into the status of orphan despite the presence of biological parents and kin as a way to access the limited support services that have traditionally come from the missionary sector and that only come with orphan status, things like education, healthcare, you know, adequate shelter. Do you think that this is still something that is actively being supported by the missionary industry? Well, I'll back up a little bit. So a lot of the literature, the anthropological literature and development literature on this phenomenon is very kind of rooted in the period after the arrival of the HIV epidemic and the start of the HIV epidemic, because that's when we really get a lot of these very large kind of focuses on orphanages, right? Because there was this fear that, well, with HIV killing parents, there's going to be all of these children who need to be taken care of. And so it's up to us, white missionaries and white development organizations to go in and save these children. And what ended up happening was that the communities and kin-based networks absorbed these children. And they were really not orphans in the sense that we think of them. But these organizations continued to offer this kind of care, right? Um, And that same thing has been happening again since the 1850s. We see that when we look back in mission organizations that have been working in East Africa, that they continue to provide the services that they think are needed on the ground, even if the orphans aren't really there. And that in turn creates orphans with quotes around them, right? They're not kind of true orphans, but they are people who use these services. And so that's in some ways, nothing new. It's also nothing. I don't think that's going to end quickly because there is I think in a lot of ways, a fundamental mismatch between the services that are needed and the services that people want to offer. And so we believe that we need to offer particular orphan services because we have seen people taking advantage of the services. And so therefore there must be orphans. And so we need to offer more of them. Um, And it's this really, in some ways, self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's a really old cycle. You know, it's been going on for 150, 175 years, at least in Africa, in East Africa, and the places where I work, of us thinking that there are people who need particular services and therefore then creating the services and creating the problem. Yep. And perpetuating it over and over again. I want to shift the focus back to you a little bit. What do you find most rewarding about your work? And conversely, what do you find most challenging? I'll start with the last part first. Um, I'm a a white woman. I'm a college professor. There are a lot of ways to argue that I have really no business studying African history, right? Who am I to come in and try to teach 
people about African history. I'm not African and not from there. And you know, there are certain institutional problems with white people having the job that I have. And I think about that a lot. And for me, that's a really challenging aspect of the work. Me being the person who is going to Africa and traveling and asking the questions and, and deriving a lot of the benefit from the research that I'm doing. Um, you know, so I'm constantly thinking about ways in which I can change that and subvert that. It's an institutional and systemic problem. And it's something that Africanists are having conversations about and finding moderate solutions to. So that's one of the things that I think a lot about in terms of the challenges. One of the things that is most gratifying about the work that I can do is, you know, perhaps because of that same positionality, it's really introducing other people here to Africa, to um, its history, and to the ways in which Americans can engage with the continent in ways that are beneficial for Africans. And I think that, you know, as a white woman, I can do that, reach particular spaces. And so that's gratifying. And working with the students I work with is, is really gratifying to see, you know, how smart and engaged they are and how much capacity they have to affect change, both within their own communities and, you know, in the world more broadly. You know, I have aspirations, certainly, that my scholarly work and the project that I'm doing on Matthew Durham and these kind of broader trends will change the way that missionaries do their own work. I don't know if it would have any of that impact, but if it did, you know, that would be gratifying as well to be able to have some kind of small change in the way that people think about the work that they're doing and to do it in a way that's more responsible. Who is or has been your greatest influence in doing good? That's a great question. I mean, I don't think that I personally do a lot of good. Um, I, you know, that's certainly not how I understand kind of the root of my, my work. I, I think about it and try to keep others from making mistakes that have been made in the past as a historian. You know, I think that history teaches a lot, can teach us a lot if we're listening. And so I think that, that that's what I... Um, try to focus on is how can the actual um, lived experiences of both people who try to do good and those who either benefit from that or whose lives are made more complicated by those actions, you know, really letting their voices tell us how to do good. So I think, I guess that's the answer, right? Is that the people that I've studied and kind of thought about and worked with over the years as a historian, you know, the sources that I've read and the voices of people who are engaged in this work and benefiting from it are really the people who have shaped the way I look at this. Now for a philosophical question, and this question is drawn from a philosopher called Kwame Apaya. What do you think the greatest social challenge of our time is? Something that future generations would look back on and wonder what on earth we were thinking? Well, living in America at this moment, I think that there's endless things that I could point to in this kind of COVID fall and after the really complicated elections we had and on the summer of kind of continuing racial injustice and climate catastrophes. But I think all of those things are, are front and center in my mind. But one of the biggest challenges is how can we as society or societies help other communities work toward their own liberation? White supremacy and history of 
slavery and the slave trade and colonialism and neocolonialism and kind of failed efforts at decolonization, right, have created this inequality that's so deeply embedded in so much of what we do. And I think that really that's kind of one of the greatest challenges. How can we work to undo some of that and really take the lead from people who are living in the burdens of that, right? And really um, not come in with our own ideas about how that can be done, but really support other people in working toward their own liberation because they know what they need and they know how they can do it and they know what will best serve them. And if we can have some kind of humility and listen to that. No, I love that. I love that. If you could tell the world something and know that every single person would hear it, what would it be? I feel like as a historian, I have to tell people to listen to history, but. (laughs) (laughs) It's good. It's it's very true. Um, (laughs) Because I think that, you know, the answers to so many of our problems lie there. When I think about, as I said earlier, you know, what has taught me about the problems inherent in doing good, it's really been listening to the voices of the past and to how people have either struggled or benefited from those interventions. And I think that, you know, the same is true for a lot of our other problems. Yeah, absolutely. Where is your favorite place on earth? Right now, it is the only place I've been for the last nine months, which is at home with my nine-month-old son. I'm a new mom, and this has just been such a radical transformation. What a year, right? He was born the same week we went into lockdown in Oklahoma. And so right now, this is my favorite place on earth um, with him and with my husband. And, you know, I'm really so lucky that we have this beautiful home and two paychecks and the safety of loving, supporting family to each other. So right now, I think that that's... um, I was on a walk the other night, and for some reason, it was really mild evening and it was a little drizzly and it was probably, you know, 60 and drizzly. And I just felt like I had been transported back to Nairobi in June. And I just thought, oh, to be there now, I would love that. And that, that idea was a little overwhelming. So I didn't follow that too far. because. Uh, <laughs> what book are you reading right now? If you have time to read books, that is. <laughs> I am a huge fan of Tana French, who writes kind of psychological detective mysteries set in Ireland. And I just finished her new book called The Searcher. And I'm also reading Crib Sheet, which is by Emily Oster. It's about a data-driven guide to parenting young children. Nice. Do you listen to podcasts? I do listen to podcasts, yes. So some of my favorite podcasts, um, I really got into the true crime genre with Serial that came out a few years ago from NPR here. And so I followed Anand Syed's story very closely and then went down a few serial related rabbit holes and followed Undisclosed, which is a podcast produced by the women who brought Anand Syed's story to Sarah Koenig. And then there are a few other spinoffs of that. <laughs> a few podcasts that I really like that, um, and I'll stop after this, are um, produced by CBC, so the Canadian Broadcasting Company uh, Corporation, um, Missing and Murdered. So they're about Indigenous women that have um, gone missing. And there was a really amazing long-form investigative piece called Finding Cleo about an Indigenous woman that had gone missing. So kind of about her story. And it's actually 
about residential schools in Canada, but it's really a really compelling piece though. Amazing. Well, thank you. It has been so wonderful to have you on the podcast and to share your knowledge and your thoughts on these issues. I think this kind of stuff is is always a conversation that can go deeper and deeper and needs to yep, in many absolutely. cases and, and with many different people. So I thank you for digging into this with me. Absolutely. I am always happy to talk about this, this material and I'm really glad to have been on. So thank you so much. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. Thanks for listening to the Good Problem Podcast. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? The Good Problem Podcast is a project of Alto. We partner with purpose-driven leaders from the business, nonprofit, and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical, and sustainable impact. Find out more at www.altoglobalconsulting.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Alto.